You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This is a special compilation episode of the show, uh, pulling together some clips from uh, some of my favorite episodes to kind of give you to kind of give like a new listener a sense of uh, what this show is about and kind of uh, some of the range of it. Um, we're going to do some bits from nine different episodes. They're all, you know, between like five to 12 minutes or so. Um, uh, I, my apologies, by the way, if you were on this show and you're not included in this one, uh, no slight on your episode. I just wanted to keep it tight. I couldn't put a bit of everything in here. Um, but yeah, uh, this is going to be, you know, uh, meant to be like an accessible thing. So if you have already listened to the show, but you know, you might want to tell someone else about it and you can give them this episode and hopefully I win them over, you know, and everybody signs up for the Flux Pod Patreon, which you can get uh, for $5 a month. You get all of the episodes of the show, as opposed to just the free ones that come out on Wednesdays. And that's at uh, patreon.com slash fluxblog. Uh, the first thing we're going to listen to is a clip from my recent episode with Heather Haverleski, uh, the advice columnist. Uh, best known for Ask Polly and also Ask Molly. She has a bunch of books out. She has a book coming out later this year about her marriage and I guess uh, by extension other marriages and the concept of marriage. But in this uh, in that episode, I was we were basically kind of <laughs> in that episode. I was basically throwing um, advice given in some of the most famous songs of all time and kind of giving her the chance to kind of analyze it and kind of determine whether it's good or bad advice. And in this clip, uh, we're going to talk about Fleetwood Mac. All right, let's move ahead to uh, I got two from Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, I love Fleetwood. I think Mac. the more famously a bit of advice song is uh, "Don't Stop." So there's a lot of advice in this song. I'm just going to throw. <laughs> I, I think I have to read a, a very large chunk of this song, so just bear with me. Okay. <laughs> if you wake up and don't want to smile, if it just takes a little while, open your eyes and look at the day. You'll see things in a different way. Actually, let's just, just do one piece of advice at a time. So <laughs> that part. <laughs> the first Oh, verse. my God. Open your eyes and look at the day. You'll see. If you yeah. wake up and don't want to smile. Yeah. If you wake up and don't want to smile. It's funny. I've never really li- processed those uh, lyrics before. If it takes just a little. So what's the idea here? Yeah. I think it's just like, eyes. you know, if, you, if you're if you in a bad mood, then uh-huh. you should just try to. I think the whole point of this song is like, if you're if you're feeling down or negative, just try to think that it might be better later okay i think that's the overall idea yes because don't stop tomorrow don't stop it'll soon be here it'll be better than before yesterday's gone yesterday's gone okay so i'm going to interpret this as because it starts with if you wake up and don't want to smile right yeah if it just takes a little while 
My practical advice linked to this that I think supports their thesis is if you wake up with a bad, shitty attitude in your head and you're like, God damn, I don't want to get out of bed, and you do that every single day, it's really just a bad cognitive habit of waking up that you've developed. Like perhaps you developed this cognitive habit when you were a teenager and your mom was yelling at you to get up and you just kept it and kept it and kept it. And then you told yourself you hated your job. You told yourself you didn't want to see anyone in the world at all. And you wanted to stay in bed and it sucks to get up. At some point, I, I, my husband and I had this conversation early on in our marriage where I told him that every single morning I would wake up and think, I don't want to fucking do my job. And he was like, that's not specific to your job. I used to have that too. And then I just started to, instead of laying in bed, thinking about how um, I didn't want to do whatever I had to do that day, I forced myself to simply get out of bed without considering how much I wanted or didn't want to do what was in front of me. And so I started to do that. And I became like, I don't know, probably like 25% happier just by following that one little bit of advice. So Christine McVie is kind of advocating for a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, exactly. And it's not about um, things will get better. We, you know, yesterday is gone. Really what she's saying is those old cognitive patterns are based on yesterday and you need to drop them because you're living a new life now. That's what she means. Yeah. And every, every day is new. Catchy. You know? Yeah. Every day is completely new and you don't know what you're going to get. And once you open your eyes to it, uh, and clear your mind of all the detritus of the past, you may find that you're actually pretty light on your feet. All right. So also from Fleetwood Mac, this one from Stevie Nicks, uh, from Gold Dust Woman, rulers make bad lovers. I could, that, that one's not really Ooh. advice so much as a, as a proclamation, but I think it's oh, worth considering. Oh, yeah. I like that a lot. So, yeah, I think they do. I think rulers make pretty shit. You know, I've always been, I've always had an aversion to rulers. I've always kind of like sort of wanted to be the king's hand and sort of hated the king, right? But Mm. now I think what's interesting about rulers is once you lose your fear and resentment of rulers um, and you observe them at a closer distance, um, rulers teach you all kinds of things about how to rule basically um, and how to like get what you want. And actually it's really good to be in, in conversation with rulers. Are they good lovers? Fuck no. I mean, I I can't be a queen now though. I can't verify that. I'm thinking more about kings when I say rulers. Yeah. You know, because I'm a heterosexual woman and most also and this is absolutely a song about heterosexual men. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes, of course. It's Stevie Nicks. Um, and we live in a patriarchy, right? So um, I'm going to say that um, I do not, I have not fucked a lot of rulers, but I can tell you for sure that they are bad lovers. <laughs> okay, and, so- I, and I just, I, you know why I know that? Because it's just like, I, apparently Stevie Nicks, like, when she's walking out to uh, to go, I love this anecdote. When she's walking out to go on stage, sometimes she says, "Walk with me, Prince," so that Prince, the spirit of Prince, is with her. 
um, while she enters the stage, which I think is fucking amazing. And so um, I think Stevie Nicks knows things. She's just it's super intuitive and has like, woo, she's like, you know, part witch, uh, can see through walls. And, you know, if I think of her as supernatural. And so I'm going to say that if she says leaders make bad lovers, I am 100%. She did, I don't even care if she's never fucked a leader before in her life. I'm going to say... She fucking knows, and we're just gonna follow her lead on this. Yes, I mean yes, Lindsey Buckingham yes. counts. <laughs> Lindsey Buckingham, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's like the absolute worst lover in the universe. I mean, amazing musician, amazing, yeah. amazing. I mean, what about like the central uh, characteristics of him? Is kind of like a he's yeah, a peevish annoyance with other people, yeah. uh, control freak. <laughs> very insecure it's yeah yeah but you say that okay but i think like another crucial thing about him that is kind of his saving grace as as a human being as an artist is that he is extremely invested in making the work of his female collaborators shine yeah yeah that's his role in that band well see isn't that interesting it's like you, you just when you're like that motherfucker you know because he's insecure He's envious. He creates these fucking love triangles like an asshole. But yeah, but he's also in awe of the powers of of women and, and, and really, really jacked into that kind of like understanding of intelligent, interesting women. And so, yeah, it's 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 weird when you get, you know, you get closer to observing someone, you think one thing like, oh, God, this again, the fucking bros or whatever. And then you see a little uh, a closer peek and you're like, hold on a second. This guy's complicated, you know, like he's I don't know. It's rulers are interesting to observe. I think that's uh, yeah. see, this is why I'm not a, a lyricist. <laughs> so I think our takeaway here is that. But yeah, that's true. So do you think. How do you think uh, that played out in that band specifically? Like his interest in um, the, you know, powerful women and, and, and the power of what they have going on. Like, I'm not saying it as well as you I'm, did. I'm thinking like this kind of like, you know, going from that career where like he's very invested in making everyone else shine, um, which I think is part of his own ego, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah, but it is like a he is a, he genuinely admires Christine and Stevie and wants to bring out the best in them to encourage you know if you listen to I think it's particularly with Stevie because she's kind of a rudimentary musician if you hear like the stuff that you know she just made on her own like the early version of Dreams like these things are you know they've released them on like box sets and things like that uh-huh. you know you really see like oh my god like Lindsay brought so much to this and like or, yeah. the, or the earliest version of Hold Me by Christine on a uh, Mirage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah. you know I think like over time like you know that's probably the source of his resentments where, when he has conflicts with them especially Stevie where it's like where there is kind of this part of him that's like I made you yeah yeah you know? But, you know, it's all great, um, great collaborations have these elements to them where, God damn it, someone is uh, cutting things and blowing things around outside. Can you hear that? It's pretty. No, it's fine. Okay. Um, But but uh, most great collaborations have this element. It's almost like you can hear. Christy McVie and Stevie Nicks, you can hear sort of the, the, 
the limits of their songwriting in their songs. And there's all of this supportive, but, and yet there's all of this purity in baked into the same, like it's limits and potential are so closely bound together. It's like you have two people who are incredibly romantic and, you know, prone to going too far with their lyrics, you know, like Stevie Nicks is like, you know, I've always been a storm, you know, like just <laughs> so melodramatic, but there's a way that it's all anchored by this just proficiency. I don't know. I don't want to put it into, yeah. you, you can get a little bit too like the man, you know, uh, channels yeah. all the wild rage of the wild, wild, intense, savage woman. I feel like this is also crucial to like the ongoing like cultural obsession with Fleetwood Mac because the songs are very good, obviously, but oh, yeah. it just kind of stirs up all of this stuff when, when you have to like think about them. Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't, I don't actually know a ton about their interpersonal dynamics. You can kind of just exist and things come at you about them. Like I think, it, you know, everyone kind of gets like the basic myth of it. So like the, yeah. the real details, the truth of it, it's almost besides the point now. Right, right, right. I love um, Fleetwood Mac. And I, and I, in college, I listened to Fleetwood Mac over and I listened to Rumors like every day, I think for like a year they're so good. But then there's like, okay, what's the song on um, Rumors that's just the uh, sappy? Oh, Daddy. Okay, I hate that one too. But there's <laughs> one that's... Um, Songbird? Songbird, yeah. Yeah, these are both Christine McVie songs. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, I often kind of like hear Chris, Christine McVie and, and sort of fast forward, um, skip to the next song. Uh, but I loved Songbird in high school. Um, I remember listening to it on a flight to go see my boyfriend who had gone to Boulder for his freshman year. Um, and it was just, you know, it's it's weird. Oh, and Beautiful Child. God, see, I love that song. Similarly melodramatic. You know that song, Beautiful Child? Yeah, that's on Tusk, right? It's on T- Tusk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That song I fucking love. And it's so melodramatic like you listen to it now and you're kind of like could would i like this if i stumbled on it now i don't know that i would but um (laughs) yeah fleetwood mac wow all right this next one is from the nick sylvester episode nick sylvester is a a musician a producer he runs uh, the music production company called god mode you know, in a, in a prior life, he was a uh, music critic uh, back for Village Voice, Pitchfork, back in the early to mid-aughts. In this clip, we're going to talk, we're, he's going to tell a story about uh, when he first moved to Los Angeles. He had already uh, produced the record, uh, the first album by Shamir, which uh, went over pretty well. And he was invited to, you know, be part of this, like, uh, I guess kind of a <laughs> producer cattle call to produce music that might be included on the Beyonce album Lemonade. And it did not go well. And uh, let's just have Nick tell the story. So from there, you, I guess now, now there's another gap where I don't know like how you get from point A to point B, but in the more recent past, you work with a lot of artists, you work as uh, producing stuff. It's kind of uh 
strike. It's very LA, as, as I understand the music industry of Los Angeles. Uh, so, how do you get to where you have been in the recent past, and how would you talk about what you've been doing yeah, in the I, recent well, past? It's 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 funny because I, again, I don't really think of what I'm doing now as much different than what I was doing in the rehearsal space, recording Yvette and trying to get them to repeat a section so that we could call that repeated section a chorus so that the song could vaguely sound like music that other people might listen to. It's, it, it's, it's not that different. Uh, and making sure that the music tells the story of the people who are making the music and just kind of having everything connect in a, a prosodic kind of way. Uh, what, what we do at God mode is very, very different from the music industry though. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not very LA at all. I've found, I think that, uh, when I moved here, I was, I, I kind of like steeled myself for, the the LA song machine experience and what I, I think what and correct me if I'm wrong what 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 I think people perceive of LA is that it's it's a bunch of people kind of uh, putting their heads together uh, and and just kind of like rapidly trying to write songs that that hopefully will be hits on the radio and is that kind of what your your understanding is? Yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of understood you as being sort of adjacent to, yeah, what would that that book would call the song so, machine? Yeah, so I, you know, I, um, I'll tell you a story of of, and this is I don't I don't come out of this looking good. I, I generally don't come out looking good in my stories, uh, but the my first drink of that was actually a session for the Beyonce album Lemonade. And Shamir and I went uh, from from New York to to Westlake Studios, and this must have been twenty. This must have been twenty fifteen, and it was you know thirty or forty people, kind of just all up in Westlake Studios. Westlake is where Michael Jackson recorded a bunch of his canonical albums, and it's you know, it, it's just a it's a it's a well regarded historically historically important studio in LA. If it's good enough for Quincy <laughs> well, Jones. The funny thing was I, I wanted a tambourine for one song and they didn't have a single tambourine in the place. They didn't have any instruments. And so most one kind of sad thing about LA studios, the nice ones is that they rarely have instruments there anymore. It's just a control room with lots of rack gear that nobody uses. And then just an aux cord for people to plug in their computers. Uh, but so it, 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 I, I was like, oh, I'm in the I'm in the Michael Jackson thing. I'm surely surely they have like some egg shakers I can use or some, you know, whatever. And they didn't have anything. Uh, but I, I went and I, again, not not really sure how writing songs in L.A. worked. I brought like 100 pounds of synthesizers with me. I brought two cases of Eurorack. I brought like a drum machine. I did all this other stuff and like was setting it up and. And meanwhile, everybody just had everything ready to go on their computer. They already had uh, loops made. They had all this stuff. I never made anything from scratch ever. Or I, I, excuse me, I only ever made stuff from scratch. I never made pre-existing stuff before. Even with Shamir, you know, I'd make something on the OP1 and then he would record a minute and a half of something on top of that. And then we kind of, it was just, 
we would just kind of, when we were remote, we would still kind of do things in step. The song and the record were being written at the same time in a way. And, you know, I, this, so I, you know, everybody's just like, you know, you have like a two, two hours to write a song is basically what it was. And then you, and yeah, the, the goal is Beyonce. you're writing something that will get in front of her camp and, and it maybe she'll take some part of it and Beyonceify it. And, uh, but you're just kind of creating source material that to, can kind of help her create her album. And, um, uh, so I get everything set up and I'm with these two really, really talented songwriters. Uh, and the, they're already like, kind of like the way that they're thinking about lyrics was like other, they're, they're, they're kind of like combing the news, like look, reading about Beyonce being like, well, you know, trying to do the thing where they're like, learn about her life so they can have lyrics that will relate to her in some way, but relate to everybody else as well. And, and they're kind of, very quickly writing a melody before I've had anything going. Like, and I'm still, I'm literally just kind of like making sure that my MIDI clocks are syncing properly. It's just like, I'm, I'm a total disaster. And this, uh, the woman starts singing a melody. She's like, can you just lay down chords to this really quickly? And th- what she's singing is, is, is so it, it's really beautiful and it's very traditional. And I, I didn't even have a keyboard with me. I didn't have anything set up. I, and I frankly just didn't even know how to even begin harmonizing her melody. I just couldn't do that. I couldn't do it as quickly. And so the first point of humiliation was they just like brought in another guy. They brought in this, like some guy like, Oh, we're going to get him. He's like a chords guy. Uh, And so, and this guy just plays a, a very simple piano progression and, and I record it and then we, I just kind of get that squared up for this woman to sing this melody that she's written for Beyonce that I'm supposed to kind of produce around uh, because I was unprepared. I, I realized in retrospect, if I had a track, they would have, we would just pick the track and she would have written to it. Uh, and so she starts, I, I had re- also refused to have an engineer because I was like, oh, whatever, I, I can engineer. It's not a big deal. And she starts singing and she stops me and she's like, I'm going to need the tune on. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, I normally tune, I normally tune vocals afterwards. And she's like, no, I don't, I don't think you understand. Like the auto tune, I sing into the auto tune. Like that's how it works. And I was like, nah, nah, that's not how, that's not how we do it. And I just had no idea. It sounds so stupid to say now, but like, I just had no idea that people sang into auto tune. I thought that things were auto tuned afterwards as an effect. Uh, which is just I- insanity, uh, and that is funny. Because like we were saying before, like the idea of like <laughs> now, thinking of lots of like uh, rock albums where the guitar is like put through the effects pedals, like after yeah, it's yeah, no, right. And that's sort of that was the philosophy was like to record everything as like dry and without effects as possible, so that you can manipulate it, you know, afterwards and. But in my head, I just didn't even realize that that was a thing that people did. And so at that point, I had these like bad piano chords that were just like, it was just somebody being like, just put putting together some chords. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll like redo them. And then they, this woman laid down the melody and she said, all right, we're going to just go into another room. Like, why don't you just kind of like finish out the track? And I was like, sure. And so I like tinkered on 
this like modular synth rig that I didn't know how to use at that point, but I had and made like kind of made a baseline, like kind of. Uh, and the, the, you know, took two hours doing this like thing that was, I was like, oh, this is, you know, but, I, but it was nothing. It was, just, it was just, it was bad. And she comes back and, and she's like, oh, let me hear what, what you got. And it was just like her vocal and this like really dinky baseline. And, she, I was like, all right, yeah, I think we're ready to roll. I think we can keep it minimal. Just maybe put like a snap on it. She's like, please do not send this to anybody. Like you absolutely can't. She was like really trying to protect, uh, to some extent protect herself, but she was, I think to some extent it was coming out of a, a goodwill. She was like, you, you, you shouldn't send this to anyone. Uh, and it was, it, I mean, it was just like really, really humiliating because you're going into all these other rooms and everything else just sort of sounds like a record that you would have hear on the radio. And and there's a ton of bass and I like, I didn't know how to make subs sound like that. I didn't know how to make drums sound like that at all. Like I just didn't know how. And, uh, that's, that is literally my first four hours making music in LA was just kind of having my ass handed to me after feeling like, Oh man, I got this awesome, you know, you know, I, I got a record with Excel. Like this is, this is awesome. Like, I'm you know, the, you know, you know, I'm, 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 I'm whatever I'm, I'm, and, and you just, you find out very quickly that you're full of shit and it, I mean, it was terrible. It was just, it felt so bad. And, uh, so that was my first experience with the LA song machine. And I think that I kind of steeled myself for like, okay, that's what it's going to be like. I need to be prepared. Uh, and so I, I started just learning how to make music like that. And then when, when, Mina and I moved to LA, uh, we, you know, that, that was kind of what I thought it was going to be. I thought Godmo was still going to be like a fun thing that Talia and I did for projects that were, you know, that were not necessarily things that anybody could make money off of. I just thought I was just going to do Godmo as again, just sort of as like, here's this fun thing, but that my job would be, uh, writing, writing pop songs and trying to produce pop music and, and that kind of thing. And Matthew, I just was, I was just really bad at that kind of thing. I think that I, I was really bad at it. And I think that there's a, there's also a whole other game to it, which is that there's a, a socializing aspect to it. You know, you, people write songs with their friends and, and that's how it works. And I was moving to LA as like a, as like a 34 or 35 year old person. And I'm not going to like hang out with 17 year olds. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like go to parties in the Hills. I'm not going to do that. Like I'm, I'm like much more concerned about like stretching out my legs so that my knees don't cramp up and like, like stupid shit like that. And it just wasn't, it just didn't feel right. And it also just wasn't, it wasn't, music that I, I liked making and that, and for whatever reason, you know, I've, I've only ever had success when I am fully committed to a project. And so at that, at that time that the, like the kind of thing that was happening in the back background of all that stuff was I had left New York after discovering an artist named Yeji and I had been doing exactly what I did in, with all every other God Mode artist, which is just w like working really, really closely on every aspect of that project, uh, which at that point, I, I, I don't think that 
I mean, there there was no recorded material. There was there was nothing, and so it was really starting that project from scratch and just kind of doing what I do. This next clip is from the second episode of the show, uh, and you can probably tell from my mic quality in this one. Uh, but this is um, Brittany Spanos. She is a uh, one of the big shot writers at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, we talk about a whole bunch of things in the episode, but in this clip, we talk about Madonna and the way uh, history is interpreted or rejected in the world of pop fandom. It's going to be so good because I feel like there's like so much, just because of the way that fandom works right now, and especially pop fandom, like... Madonna is kind of seen as just like for a lot of pop fans, like they hated her song with Dua Lipa. They think that she's just like, not like if you're not a Madonna Stan and you stand another pop artist, like she is like the enemy for so many of them. Yeah. Um, which is so weird. Cause like she really should be seen as like the Beatles figure. Like you really would not have most of any of this stuff without her. Like I, like I really see like, Madonna Madonna and Janet Jackson really are the architects of how we understand pop music now. Yeah. And it's one of those things where because she's still like competing against those artists that would not be here without her. Like it's just becomes this kind of like weird fan, like Stan Twitter war. Um, but yeah, like I think it'll be really good for people to kind of see like this is the same story as like many of your pop artists today. Like everyone here is like here because of Madonna, like all the music exists because of her. Like it's not, you know, doesn't exist in in a bubble. It's like really just like a, you know, a history worth, you know, respecting and exploring and wanting to learn about. But yeah, I think that's like, I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of the way that people kind of view her. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think also with pop music, there isn't like this uh, this history lesson that you're given over and over again, like there is with rock music, where there is this... Oh, it's anti-history. You know, yeah, where, <laughs> so it, it really kind of does need something to be there to be like, well, here's the ground zero of this story. You know, there's yeah. you have these zero years in the 70s with disco, but it really becomes this thing in the early 80s, and then, you know... It, it beca- I think it was ratified in the nineties and then, you know, th- and then you, once you have like a second generation, it becomes with like Britney Spears, especially, yeah. you know, I think sometimes people just think of Britney Spears as being the zero point. We're like, no, that's not, no, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that pop does kind of need that, uh, you know, kind of popularly understood story. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, pop is so much and top 40 is so anti-history in ways that are always really funny to me because it recycles so much. And so like, but I think to, you know, for on a certain level to make that effective and to make it seem new is to pretend that this is happening for the first time in a lot of ways, even just like the way that we've looked at like a lot of disco revival this year. And like, you know, a lot of the, it's, you know, not necessarily, the same type of disco, but it's still kind of there. It's still kind of like adjacent and still kind of like a, a, a new entity in 2020 in that way. But yeah, pop's relationship with history has always been really fascinating to me just because it's, you know, very, very tempestuous relationship with it. 
Do you think there's, you know, some of this is uh, to, you know, I think maybe like people like us are to blame, maybe not us specifically, but like, like music writers, I think have largely avoided, uh, you know, doing this sort of narrative. Um, yes and no. I think there's also just like, again, like this need to re like to repackage and to make things seem new. Like there is this like desire to like, you don't want to kind of seem too referential as a pop artist, because even though all music is referential, you know, everyone comes from somewhere, like a lot of things have been done already. Like you want to be seen as like a new type of person, like a new type of like, you know, like reinventing the wheel in a lot of ways. So I think you know, it's kind of a, an industry thing for sure. And kind of this desire to, you know, even like, you know, maybe the most obvious example is Gaga's relationship with Madonna early in her career. Like there was so much that was so like, that was so loud. Um, there's so much of, um, the, of her career that was just like very clearly coming from, uh, coming from being inspired by Madonna. Like there's so much uh, there and just her wanting to like separate herself so much from it. And like Ariana Grande and Mariah Carey, like it's like there, you know, you could easily just point out the fact that there is like so much that related between the two and so much of Mariah that inspires Ariana, but at the same time, it's like this desire to like completely, you know, separate yourself from your hero and like make it clear that you are, it, you exist on your own timeline and that you are the first you to exist. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's just like, I mean, it's, that's kind of, that further complicates that relationship with history. Cause then you suddenly like are creating this like almost few, I mean, I don't, I think, you know, a lot of, like, Gaga versus Madonna and, like, Ariana versus Mariah were obviously very, you know, over-escalated by fandom as well. But, you know, you kind of, like, create this rift between the two, between the hero and the, you know, the artist who wouldn't exist without them. <laughs> this next clip features Kate's Holderness, an old friend of mine who works at Tumblr. And I had her on to kind of go over uh, all the all the trends and how people on the Tumblr platform were uh, engaging with music in the past year. And in this clip, uh, something I had no idea about, she tells me all about uh, how Hozier has a humongous and passionate following on Tumblr. One, one of the things that I was just like, what about? was the top solo artists, um, which is largely the people that you think it would be, you know, your Harry Styles and Taylor Swift, Sean Mendez, Selena Gomez, Rihanna, Ariana Grande, Lana Del Rey, Halsey, you know, Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion, you know, of course, right? Yeah. But number four on this list is Hozier. And it's like, how did he get such a following on Tumblr? Oh my God. He has the hugest following on Tumblr. Um, first off, like I am personally a huge fan of his music. So like I'm part of that fandom. Um, but we see people kind of um, really, first off, they love his music. It taps into this kind of like vibe. Like I was talking about, about like being kind of feral, you know, like, there's a, a running joke that like he lives in a forest and he emerges once every four years to drop an album that breaks the world. And then he goes back to his like fey, um, like forest hideout underneath a mushroom and like just lives there. 
See, that's the narrative uh, Bon Iver could have had, but he just kind of walked away from it. He, you know, he could have tapped into that and he did not, you know? Yeah. I mean, in fairness, you get to decide what you want to be. But, it's true. Um, <laughs> it's true. But, like, but it's yeah, so but, but I think that's pe- people are definitely attracted to that like mysterious loner in the woods thing. Well, and it's a it's an interesting combination of like, yeah, that mysterious kind of loner in the woods who like drops a song like Take Me to Church, where the lyrics are like like so intense and like um also a little horny, but you know, mainly just very, very intense and like taps into this sense of kind of like, you know, like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like this kind of like ancient kind of feeling of like, whether it's like holiness or, or like longing, you know, like it's about the yearning and people love to yearn and he writes great songs for that. But he also, you know, is extremely progressive. He's been very open about, you know, um, crediting, you know, the everything that um, that black musicians and black female musicians have done, and that kind of representation and kind of uplifting of of people of color really resonates with um, how progressive like the Tumblr community is and how much they care about that kind of representation, that kind of credit. What does uh what what does a what do posts about Hozier look like? Like what are what are they sharing? Are there is there like a lot of gifts of Hozier? Or like how does this work? Not a ton of gifts. That you get like visual edits, so like you know like a, a mood board. Do you, are you do you know what a mood board is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So you so maybe you can explain to the audience what it is. Sure. A mood board is like a collage of like nine images in a grid that kind of taps into an aesthetic or a vibe. Um, so like people do, you know, like a aesthetic mood board of like ocean and forest and, um, cups of coffee and like a cozy sweater and then pair that with, um, some lyrics from one of his songs. But then there are also like really funny, like text posts. Like I'm, I, I'm actually, I just did a search cause I was curious. There's one recent one. Uh, from a user yesterday that said, I love that Andrew could have brought could have bought a loaf of bread, a universal and ancient food for the spirits around his place, but instead he chose digestives, which is like um like a British biscuit. 
<laughs> so people love following him on social media. We saw a huge bump for him. He accidentally posted an Instagram video of himself using the um, like sexy Squidward filter that Instagram hand follow. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so he posted this thing and then realized that he posted it and deleted it and then like posted an apology video it was like sorry i didn't mean to send that and like tumblr lost it like they were like this is the best thing we've ever seen like his fans were like this is unhinged and like he was clearly you know like a couple of glasses of wine deep and just posted this thing on accident and it was great but he like he inadvertently was just playing to his audience 100 <laughs> percent <laughs> oh gosh and then you oh, get man. you know you get fan art you get memes you get um you know people like to um you know like make cross stitches out of his lyrics as well so you get like cross stitch and embroidery like it's it's wild to see how creative people get with things like music so do a lot of those things just kind of apply to most everyone else on this list? Or is that some, a lot of these things particular to how people engage with Hozier? I think a lot of those things are particular to how they engage with Hozier. Like kind of the, the, like the embroidery and stuff like that, I feel like is very much, it taps into this kind of cottage core vibe that I think a lot of his fans overlap with. Um, which is interesting to see mood boards like they're constant they're going to be for for everyone um you know like people are always going to be making like aesthetic edits of of tumblr power user taylor swift <laughs> like it's just it's just a thing um and, and taylor obviously has gone very cottagecore herself oh my god yes i am convinced that like folklore was inspired by her just like scrolling through her tumblr blog <laughs> like i think it's it's so that vibe and i love i just read this uh, interview with fiona apple and pitchfork where she was talking about how like she loves scroll like tumblr is her favorite she's got a she's got a secret tumblr and nobody knows what it is and i love that um she was saying that like she she spends most of her time on tumblr as far as you know screen time goes which i think yeah. is great uh, this next clip is uh, from a, one of my favorite episodes, uh, the Party Rock Symposium, featuring uh, my very good friends, Molly Mary O'Brien and Chris Wade. They do a podcast called End Introducing. Strongly recommend it. Uh, and, you know, we got together to talk about LMFAO and the idea of party rocking and how, you know, if, why we need party rocking to come back into vogue in our culture. Uh, it's, it's it's a silly episode, but it's also one where I think we got at a lot of like serious ideas, I think, you know. Uh, but in this one, we, is this is a more goofy part where we talk about LMFAO and their connection to the concept of Uncle Magic. I was thinking like one of the ways that maybe we are, the culture is moving back towards party rock is like there's that one like meme phrase where it's like no thoughts had empty. Oh yes. And that that is like, and I feel like, okay, yeah, that, that's the seed. That's the seed from which the new party rock. And crucially grow. that that is an aspirational phrase that you, that yet something yes. that you're trying to be like. That I'm trying. I want to rid myself of these tawdry anxieties and and war material interests, and to be, 
to become No Thoughts Head Empty. It's the same with uh, the recent resurgence, aspirational resurgence of bimbos and himbos. That's uh, like yes. I wish I could be like them. I wish I could have no no cares and just be a a good looking, well meaning uh, idiot. Just a response to this yeah. time in history. Because, you know, and the, I would say the use of the internet as well, to go back to that, like being mired in this constant vortex of negative feelings and negative feedback, uh, why wouldn't you want to basically just sort of turn your brain off and not absorb? Girl, look at and then also with like a song like sexy and i know it i mean that's a body positivity anthem yes it is before time that is purely what it is like years before anyone would call it something like that yep wow <laughs> the inventors of the body positive body positivity movement red foo and sky blue uh other things from that era that I feel like peaked and never, I guess it's never run away, but uh, could use a type of coming back. Uh, and also just interesting to track how this changed. Uh, Jersey Shore yes. was was major party rock energy from that uh, that era. The situation of very much a party rock LMFAO person. did their theme song. Less the Jersey, dead. really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Um, Jim Tan laundry, laundry as like the entirety of your world and then just going to clubs. I mean, that's great. And I, I think that is what I was going to say was interesting to track is the evolution of something like Jersey Shore into something like Vanderpump Rules, which I think tries to have a patina of party rocking on it. But again, the same thing with WAP has this like real transa- transactional undertow to it where you can tell that it's all of these people using this thing that should just be like a bunch of bimbos and himbos hanging out and having fun and partying with each other as this like aspirational career climb project that the show is about, but also kind of hides by virtue of them being like, they're just some guys who work at a restaurant. Uh, when that's clearly right. not the case. I think careerism is antithetical to yes, party rock. Exactly. So, like, kind of going back to like the the hot couch guys. Those are like fundament- fundamentally unambitious people. And to even characterize LMFAO and and similar things is like the like the most actualized version of that type of person. It's still like not letting go of that kind of lack of ambition the very fact that lmfao just kind of like stopped this <laughs> disappeared yes. i think says a lot is like they, they weren't trying to keep it going they were like okay we see that the party has ended we will gracefully bow out i mean i like to think that maybe like uh sky blue will get another like nephew or niece oh that would be cool wow. the uncle world and like they will return, but like uh, Red Foo will have bowed out, and it's the new generation. This is the circle of life of of uncle, uncle and nephew magic. To to every generation, a nephew is born. 
Right. And I, I think it doesn't necessarily be gender, but it's like that weird, like, uh, diagonal familial relationship. Yeah. Uh, so like nieces and nephews, uncles and aunts. I think, you know, even what, what if the new LMFAO is an aunt and niece? That'd be great. That'd be awesome. You know, it, could, it could happen. Um, but can, can we talk for just a moment about Uncle Magic and how they uh, they are probably like the cultural pinnacle of Uncle Magic? Uh, yes. Would you like me to just to just go off? Yeah, I think it's up to you. I, I mean, I guess. I mean, this is another thing, just like the high couch thing, that has been kind of uh, drawn up on Chapo. And I, I can speak to it. I'm certainly not the originator to it. Uh, both these concepts have come through the beautiful mind of Felix Biederman. And I think the, the universal truth that uh, Felix is drilling down here on is the kind of magic of having a... A familial connection that is nonetheless not constrained by the uh, the limitations, uh, the horrible limitations of the intimacy of like a father and son relationship, where you almost know each Zero other. Zero responsibility. Yes, you get all the 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 positivity of having a familial re- intergenerational masculine relationship with none of the responsibilities of actually like quote unquote raising a son or you know living up to your father's expectations or anything you'd get a dad who doesn't have to be a dad and a son who doesn't have to be a son i think uncles are known to be mischievous figures yeah and you could just like it's like yeah it's like you're a, a dad who is also like a friend that you can just do fun stuff with the uncle will will you know crack you the beer uh, and have a little sneaky guy time uh, during yeah. the family gathering versus uh, dad says no beer until you turn twenty one. That's Uncle Magic. Yeah, I'm an uncle and I've enjoyed being an uncle. <laughs> I don't I, I don't see my nieces and nephews very much, but uh, I I think I have some Uncle Magic to my niece in particular. Uh, she likes me a lot. <laughs> Uh, Chris, one day you'll be an uncle, I think, more than likely, right? Well, yeah, like now Molly, I, it uh, was several sisters. It was, but before I met and married Molly, Molly, the possibility of being an uncle was foreclosed to me as an only child. But now the the door is open. I did you see yeah. the tweet that was like, "Damn, there really are some people who are both only children, and then they get married, and then their kids won't have any aunts or uncles." It's true, or cousins, I mean, or cousins. Uh, as we mentioned, cousins, that is the thing that completes the Trinity. It is the, the uncle, the uncle, the nephew, the cousin in terms of the relationship. And all three of those things, uh, are represent the, the three ways that you can maintain familial connections without, uh, observing the familial responsibilities. The cousin is the sibling without having to, you know, deal with the, the pain of have, of, you know, the, 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 all the bullshit that comes with like actually growing up with somebody else. Uh, in the same house. Um, yeah. So, so LMFAO really kind of exemplify this thing where it's the kind of fun you can't really have with a parent or even a brother. It's like, it's there. It's kind of has to be this kind of uh, diagonal, like quasi relationship where you are related, but there's just no, like there's no like cultural resonance to uncles. Yes. I think, you know, Maybe more recently, like in The Last Jedi, like the primary conflict of that movie is uncle, nephew. Yeah. Mm, mm. And, you know, I think that of the things that are good about that movie, the uncle, nephew relationship is not potent, you yes. know? Yes, of course. I, everybody loves uh, loves the character of, of Kylo Ren, who's, who's pr- broadly and popularly considered the dark nephew. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Because like, you know, he's the dark son, but yeah. Like, when, the, but the major conflict that we see is him versus his uncle, his uncle Luke Skywalker. And Luke Skywalker is such an uncle figure. Like it's, it's actually very hard to imagine Luke Skywalker being a father. But he's such an archetypal uncle. Uh, it is very funny to consider that it that uh, if it, in the original trilogy you had Darth Vader, if in this if in the new trilogy you had had like Darth Vunkel, <laughs> uh, or you know Darth Darth uh, uh, well, it's ultimately the heroic uncle and evil nephew. Yes. <laughs> But but then, you know, we, we go to the next movie in that trilogy, and then it becomes a dark grandpa. Yes, exactly. <laughs> bad, bad grandpa. grandpa the bad gra- uh, granddaughter uh, conflict. A classic yes. one for the ages. Did bad grandpa come out the same year as, as uh, The Rise of Skywalker? Because that, if, if so, that's a... Several years before, but yeah. But that, that is a very good point, that, that, that Rise of Skywalker is the ultimate bad grandpa movie. Another uh, media property that we're currently revisiting that has a ton of Uncle Magic in it is Game of Thrones due to the complex family uh, trees. And there's just a there's a ton of Uncle Magic going on Um, or, you know, the lack of Uncle Magic, like with uh, Tyrion and uh, that horrible, horrible Joffrey. Yes. Joffrey again, like Kylo Ren, the dark nephew. Dark nephew. Oh, wow. Yeah. The dark nephew and like, you know, heroic uncle. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Crucially, also, uh, old Luke and uh, Tyrion have virtually the same hairstyle. Hmm. So, yeah, I guess there is something here. This next clip features Trevor Bilyeu from the podcast Champagne Sharks, one of my big favorites. Uh, I was thrilled to have him on. Uh, in this clip, we talk uh, largely about Eminem. We, there's a lot of digressions in the episode, and Tre- Trevor's a very thoughtful man who just kind of will go on a lot of tangents. But this is about Eminem and uh, how Eminem's music has not aged tremendously well. Uh, and there's one thing that you were writing about uh, Eminem being just aging terribly. Oh, that, yeah. That resonated with me. And. Uh, if, you'd, if you'd like to kind of like get into that a little bit. You know, it's funny. When I put that, a lot of Eminem haters, um, you know, came into my mentions. I'm like, I can't believe in this day and age, there's still this many, like, you know, I just picture like these 40-something-year-old guys with like uh, really, really baggy pants and the swimming on them. Like, I was trying to think, like, <laughs> who is someone who would get this worked up over Eminem in like 2021? But, I mean, it just, I've tried to listen to old Eminem albums and... The weird voices in the background and the eh, 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 and all these like little like it's ages and it's not just about youth because some people were saying hey you know he's young what do you expect but there were people who there were plenty of people who made albums younger than him uh, in hip hop who this, I mean like Nas yeah example, Nas is one. Nas is one uh, special ed I think was like 18 Elo Cool J was like 16 when he started like all those albums age you know great like like I don't know what the word for it's not just like it's young but he's very juvenile there's something very juvenile and the shock yeah I think that's the right word yeah and the shock aspect of it and they're talking about giving wedgies to NSYNC and all this stuff it's just too 
you know, all the it, it's very of its moment. So, like, I mean, there, I think there's a value in being really of your moment, but that's like the the risk, right? Yeah, Where it just like why are you like why are you mad at Moby? Yeah, so <laughs> weird. Like you know, and and I think also it's of its moment in a way that hasn't aged uh well because we're in this kind of era where um and we talked about this on the podcast a lot people who listen to podcasts probably sick of me giving this example but you know i gave an example of um this this documentary called generation like by pbs frontline where they ask a bunch of young kids uh what the meaning of selling out is and they actually don't know and i think this is very much a true to that like the first wave of hipsterness was very much about oh I'm not mainstream I'm not mainstream or uh, and always uh, issuing the mainstream whereas now I think it's like hey I'm enjoying the mainstream just as much as the normie but I'm doing it ironically that's the difference you know but it's like a, or, or or more intelligent yeah or more intelligently so it's like uh, hip, a hipster will listen to um the same music that a Saturday Night Live fan will listen to who's forty you know they'll both be listening to Taylor Swift. But one will, like, like you said, we'll be doing think pieces that really kind of overthink it. You know, it's, the way you said it is great, either ironically or more intelligently. But there is no real. Yeah, I, I think I think even more more recently, especially in the uh, economy of uh, content is like, well, I need to explain to you why this music you like is actually politically good why it's why it's speaking to yeah. something you know, you know whatever it is you know like there's that kind of famous tweet of the, the making fun of pitchfork with the, the goop on your grinch tweet if you know that one yeah but yeah that, that's but yeah that's uh i think that's actually where bodies and spaces comes from oh interesting after after <laughs> that's my understanding well, when i was trying to figure well out. i know bodies yeah. i think came from uh Foucault, he used to use bodies a lot, and then, but I don't know if in using it in the, a pop way came from. Oh, but, but, but just like the, the, the in the meme oh, sense, the meme so sense. Like we're gotcha. doing spaces, like yeah, like that's that's the origin. It comes from that tweet. I'm, uh, I'm, but yeah, but yeah, but again, like yeah, so it's like I'm doing it now. I mean, and part of that, I mean, it's kind of like it's there's kind of like two forces that come together. Uh, explaining why so much of music media has moved in that direction. And, and part of it is this uh, very well-meaning uh, taking popular music seriously and all this stuff, which, you know, I think comes out of like poptimism, things like that. And which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the more bad thing is like how much of this is done to just, create content because this is people only really want to read about celebrities and that's what we that's what people will click on that's what people will come to the site to read like people don't really you know it's like people reading about music people reading about lots of things uh it's so much things are niche and you can't really (laughs) you can't really scale it the way that the tech companies want things to scale yeah yeah but I mean, like, I feel like in I feel like in general, there used to be, I feel like in general there used to be this type of um, anti-establishment strain, especially uh, from boomers to Gen X. Like, we take it for granted, but I, you know, I think it was a very 
short period in time. I don't think it really existed before and has existed since. But you know, boomers to gen, late boomers to Gen X was this thing of demand, uh, the, the establishment, the mainstream, or or you know the lamestream, which I think a distinction that's kind of gone. An, an example is how Eminem was always making fun of NSYNC and Justin Timberlake, but um, Fifty Cent the songs with Justin Timberlake, you know, like, like, but, but what 50 Cent did back in the days, if you did a song, um, those examples, like Dougie Fresh was a, you know, well-known New York, um, OG rapper. And he did a song in the nineties with hammer and people got so mad at him and called, accused him of selling out and going mainstream. He had to actually apologize to his fan base and leave hammer's label. Like, like he joined hammer's label and he had to be, you would think he molested a kid or something, the way he gave his a, apology, like a, and, you know, went in public. He was like, yeah, I don't know what happened. I apologize to my fans. Like, they acted like he did something, like, so morally wrong. Whereas now, like, that doesn't happen. You're supposed to do songs with the biggest, yeah. hottest person. You almost get looked down on if you don't. So Yeah, if you don't get that. Yeah, so, so like, Migos... I feel like the, the core of this is like that cohort like is invested in coolness in a way that subsequent generations like they interpret coolness in a completely different yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Coolness is because I think because of the internet and virality, nothing is cooler than having eyeballs of being the most seen person. So if you if you um, are with the person, if you're getting a bigger platform, that automatically makes you cool now. Whereas before. I felt like, you know, I think something about keeping your integrity and staying small was, uh, you know, cooler. So it's like Migos does a song with Katy Perry, you know, and it's like back in the days if like Run DMC did a song with Tiffany or Debbie Gibson or whoever, or, or Madonna, it would just be like, OK, this person is not mainstream. They've lost all the street cred. Yeah. Migos lost no street cred from being with Katy Perry on Saturday Night Live stage. It's just like, wow, they're validated. They they came from the hood to um, Saturday Night Live, like more power to them. So I think that's another way that, Eminem, right? Because they've never been a guest in their own right, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's another way that Eminem's album ages weird. Because I think that's another way, like you look at it, and it's not just juvenile, but I think people wouldn't even say like, "Hey, why are you making fun of the people that are big?" Yeah. You won't even get it. There's a, kind of a weird like circus energy to a lot of that music. That's a great way to put it. It is. It is. It feels so cartoony and silly in a way that uh, I don't know. It's just, it, I don't think any, I, I don't, I wouldn't put it past people to eventually feel more nostalgic for it, especially people who really grew up on that. Uh, like Eminem hits like when I'm, I'm probably like 18 or 19. And like, I'm, like, I, it just didn't connect with me at all. You know, the peak uh, circus Eminem is, you know, that song, just lose it. Like, arr, 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 arr. like that's very, very circusy. <laughs> that's, I think that's probably like 2002, 2003, something like that. Yeah. So it's a little ways in. Yeah. I think that's, I think that like he's chasing that energy in that one. Yeah, uh, exactly. He's really trying hard to have a new, um, my name is, or, uh, without me. Like at, at that point, that's the stick now. The first single has to be something cartoony and circusy. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah. almost self-parody. Oh, and angry. There's there definitely was a pattern. Yeah, yeah, but no, it ages uh, really bad, especially because he's already too old to be that emo and cartoony to begin with. Even at that, because I think when he how old was he? 
when he when that first big record came out probably like in his mid to late 20s i think like he was closer to late 20s because he was grinding for for a while um he was born he was born in 72 so he was already like 32 when um just loser came out wow okay yeah he was older than people thought because he had been grinding for for a while yeah i mean it's 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 funny because like he, he i mean we're saying before like having like these kind of like devoted cult fans these fandoms things and eminem absolutely has that because like even pretty super deep into his career he still has like these records that sell like or, or stream huge numbers so people are obviously very devoted to eminem oh yeah very devoted but, and you know, you know something yeah. else that happens to eminem too is like when i put that tweet up a lot of people were saying sell me this as you know a defense of him goes yeah you know well, you can say what you want but without him hip-hop wouldn't be as big as it was and I, that would just like piss me off because i'm like i don't care like <laughs> for hip-hop was already big i don't, I don't Act in that. Was that? I mean, it's no. Obviously, Eminem like sold humongous quantities of records, and obviously his race helped in a lot of ways. Yeah. But there's, if you just take Eminem out of the history of rap, I don't think things change very. No, much. No, don't change very much. And honestly, I think any difference that he made is among people who don't really like rap, but just like Eminem. There's a lot of people out there who still think rap is crap, but they like Eminem. And those are the worst hip hop fans. Uh, Like, like if that's your case for why he is necessary, then, you know, that's even worse. Cause I think those people are the worst people. Cause they're the the ones who only come in to jump into hip hop conversations to say, um, Eminem's the best and everyone else sucks, you know? And, I hate mumble rap and it, it, like they're not contributing anything. I, 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 a weird thing about Eminem's career is that even as he kind of continues to be successful, like he really exists outside of like all rap trends on any side of the culture. Yeah. It's the like he really, he just makes Eminem music. And like, I mean, I feel like there's, uh, that's respectable to kind of this. Uh, he just does his thing. Fair enough. But he is kind of what I was saying where like if you take Eminem out of the history of rap, it's just like it's like there's just nothing. It's almost like it's like a, like a Jenga tower. Like it's like the whole thing just kind of stays exactly the same. But there's just a hole. There. Do you know what Eminem is? Eminem is juggalo music for non juggalos. Like if you listen to, to it's the respectable juggalo. Yeah, exactly. Or I call him like a hyper lyrical juggalo. He's like, you know, if if a juggalo really, really tried to reach uh peak lyricism uh you know so so when you listen to insane clown posse music and it's funny because you said that his music is circusy and and i'm saying that he sounds like insane clown posse which is you know uh a clown or something from a circus but uh i discovered insane clown posse uh late right and i always thought the way he had beef with them that they were some people that were so aesthetically different than them and when i heard my first insane clown posse song i was like holy crap this is that same energy eminem has and they're both from detroit it's just that eminem is way 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 more lyrical and he has some black fans and stuff but so yeah i think eminem is part of a lineage of music and i think early tighter the creator and odd future i think had very much of that uh same um this this rap writer i know um called odd future um black juggalos and he got fired from double xl for it uh 
and this Christ. Yeah, but but the funny thing was, I think he's been proven. I think he's been proven right. <laughs> like like they. Uh, yeah. early- I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. funny because I feel like all like almost everyone involved in that, like their career has evolved in such a ways that you kind of forget like what the first few years of Odd Future was like. Yeah, and they themselves seem to be kind of embarrassed of their Eminem uh, shock phase because uh, now Tyler the Creator is like more trying to be woke, and uh, they even got into a beef with Eminem, like kind of like this Eminem is being corny and stuff, and Eminem got mad and. For once, I was on Eminem's side because yeah. I was like, okay, you guys were clearly jocking Eminem when you first came out. And now even you kind of see that he's uh, very uh, hello, fellow kids himself. And you've turned on him. But yeah. but yeah, but you're right. He had very much his type of music. And even the people he inspired didn't really integrate into rap well. Like early Odd Future, I don't think really meshed into what was going on into the rest of rap very well. Hopson is not really someone that anyone really thinks of as hip-hop proper, you know? This next clip features Maria Sherman, a music writer. She wrote a book about boy bands called Larger Than Life. In this bit, we talk about K-pop and how K-pop is not, you know, widely covered in music press just yet. And we also talk about why BTS was the K-pop group to like really just break humongously big in America. K-pop is like a, a specific thing, but there's also just like I feel like a, a, a boom and in interesting music from South Korea. There's a lot of things that would kind of, I guess, be considered like indie or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's like really interesting indie stuff. So it just feels like I don't know. It just feels like there's this whole thing happening. And I don't know. I guess some people just don't really, because it's so huge. And I mean, not just like in terms of popularity, but just like this kind of whole, there's a lot of context to take in to try to parse mm-hmm. through. And I think when right. you're a music writer, you, you want to at least pretend to be authoritative. <laughs> and to be authoritative about this stuff would take a lot of time and effort. But I still think you can just kind of approach the stuff, you know, as music, you know. Yeah. And I think sometimes people kind of get hung up on all of the stuff that they think they need to contextualize, um, which can sometimes have the adverse effect where I'll read something and I'm like, this kind of veers into like exoticizing territory. And I know this person is probably just trying to like make clear um, some sort of history of, of K-pop Um but it's not very linear. And then I think it gets sort of diluted into being this incredibly linear thing. I mean, my book, like it's really sort of surface level. And I hope um, when people read that section, they know I'm not trying to (laughs) give them like a master class in the history of K-pop, just sort of like foundational information so they can kind of do their own thing. But certainly when I was, when I was getting into the music, I felt a bit of a a problem or I don't know, an issue where I couldn't figure out where to start. Um, And I guess this would have been like when big bang was the big K-pop boy band, Um, And at that time, I just listened to the music and went to the shows and had a good time. Uh, So I guess it's only (laughs) as um, deep as as you make it. (laughs) If you're a music journalist, do your due diligence or like do your research. But (laughs) for everybody else, you can just enjoy a pop song for what it is. So like my 
bias in K-pop is like pretty heavily in favor of the girl groups. Yeah. You know, I, I like Blackpink. I like Twice. I like Red Velvet. Mm-hmm. You know, Girls' Generation and 2NE1 a little mm-hmm. further back. Like, but that makes sense because I pretty much always like girl groups and I'm always a little like, eh, about about boy bands. Yeah. Uh, not really for like any ideological reason. It's more just like, I think there's like a sort of melody that boy bands gravitate to that I just don't really like that much. I like a lot of One Direction songs, but One Direction yeah. I think is like just a completely weird thing overall. Like there's 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 kind of One Direction is kind of a thing unto itself. Doesn't but, make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> their uh, their musical touchstones are kind of all over the place in a way that is very unexpected in the boy band story. But yeah, yeah. I mean, technically the biggest rock band of the past decade. Yes. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, no, no one likes rock music anymore, but One Direction like was just playing stadiums everywhere. Um, <laughs> wait, so, uh, so, I, so I was kind of setting up an idea there. So I've never really connected with BTS. So like, from your perspective, why did BTS, like, why were they the ones to break out in the United States the way they did? Yeah, this is another question that I feel like there are many disparate answers for. Um, but it, 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 I don't know if it was necessarily BTS. Like, it could have been anybody, I think, um, had they done what BTS did, um, which is essentially um, make themselves known in America. And then since America is the world's largest music market, people kind of tend to follow what, what happens here. Um, and that's always been true of the boy band story as well. Like when you make it in America, then it's like, all right, we've, we've done it. Now we can take over the world. Um, when um, BTS kind of came into the fold, South Korea's K-pop idol industry was kind of already just like overflowing with acts. Um, so there wasn't a lot of room for new talent and because BTS was on Big Hit Entertainment, which isn't a big three, it's not a major label, um, essentially in South Korea, they had to get creative and they sort of set their sights on, on America and it worked. Um, I think there's, there are other facets of that. I, I guess there was always sort of like the interest in K-pop was also like bubbling under cause we'd saw, like you even mentioned girls generation or to anyone, um, or Big Bang, like I mentioned earlier, like I think the foundation had been set for a group to really break um, in America, a K-pop group to really break in America and, and BTS by virtue of the fact that they kind of set their sights on our shores. Um, it's one of the major reasons they were able to do it. And then I think they did everything else right, which was just like being very aggressive on social media and making themselves accessible from day one to each other or to their fans. Um, and then having that sort of ineffable it quality where they're just like really fun boys to watch hang out together and they're cute and they all fulfill a certain role or appeal to a certain personality type. Um, So it's kind of like a combination of all the things that have worked for boy bands in every decade since boy bands have existed. And then um, good marketing, good business acumen, I guess, Uh, which is not a very romantic way of describing it. It's always part of it. I mean, yeah. especially on this level of things. But it's, so I right. guess basically like there was a hole in the market because One Direction had ceased to be. Yes. And there hadn't been something to rush into that void just yet. There were, there mm-hmm. were other things, but they, it wasn't clicking in the huge way. Mm-hmm. And then they also, but, but K-pop, uh, the foundation was built. So someone was just ready to just do it. And it was that. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think it's not that like all like One Direction, like directioners became 
BTS army overnight. Though I do follow a bunch of um, Directioner like Twitter accounts that did become BTS army and what felt like overnight. It was probably a couple months. Um, but I think that they were appealing to people who were like curious about K-pop or already into K-pop and those Directioners and teen pop fans in general. It's all of these sort of different groups. And also the fact that BTS... Um, have dedicated rappers and, and we're doing like hip hop music when traditionally boy bands who do that don't really make it that huge. Um, they were bringing something new to the story. It's, it's like a multitude of, of factors that kind of give us this explosion. This next clip features Rob Sheffield, uh, one of the greatest music critics of all time. You would know him from his many books, you would know him from Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, and this, in the episode I did with him, we kind of went. Through, <laughs> I, I played a game where I just had the uh, the Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums of all time, like the revised list that came out in earlier this year, and just like took two like uh, records that were right next to each other on the list, tossed them to Rob. So he could kind of riff on what is similar, what the what is what is the connection between these two things, which is he has a weird superpower where he is able to draw connections between things that are seem very unlikely. Um, in this bit, we talk about pavement and Sade. This we're gonna wrap on one ninety nine and two hundred. One ninety nine is pavement, slanted, enchanted, and two hundred is Sade, diamond life. Oh my gosh. Well, what a pairing. What a perfect, perfect, perfect pairing. Um, two perfect debut albums that set up a sensibility. Um, and, and because there had been singles before that, people had huge expectations for those debut albums, yet they managed to exceed those expectations. Also, records that seemed so perfect that you kind of thought that it was as far as they could go, you know, like... I mean, I love Diamond Life when it came out and I love Slanted and Enchanted. But I thought like, okay, this is the great album they had in them. I, 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 it was weird when Chardet put out a second album just you know, barely a year later. Um, it was also weird that it turned out to be so good. It was very much, a, you know, Promise is, is very much her crooked reign, crooked reign. Um, also like uh, Chardet and, and Pavement both, bands that thrived on adopting this sensibility um, that uh, people had very recently seen as, as a played out sort of sensibility. And they're finding all these playful ways to use it that just nobody had envisioned a couple of years earlier. Um, and so it's, it's really kind of remarkable, like also both hugely Roxy music influenced records. It's very interesting what a pair Chardet and Pavement make. I feel like they both have a, a a certain elegance to them, but they're very com they're completely different forms of elegance. They're foxy to me. Are they foxy to you? Yeah. <laughs> also, like records that are very cryptic in ways. Yeah, kind of mystery. Yeah. Yes, the, the mystery about them. I mean, it, it's mind blowing how famous Chardet is without being the slightest bit famous at all. We know nothing about her life. She completely uh, succeeds at drawing the curtains between albums, you know, she makes an album, you know, every 10 years or so uh, with her band that nobody ever notices exists, even though it's the same band for person for person that she's had together, like for 35 years. And the band is called Chardet. It's kind of remarkable in itself that, that this, you know, like five person band is like exactly the same personnel as it's been. What a story that would make, except 
they do such a great job of covering the story. And um, there's that same kind of mystery that that went with um, Smith Pavement as well. When Pavement put out Slanted Enchanted, nobody knew what they looked like. Um, nobody even their knew names their names aren't on the cover. Yeah, they wouldn't even put their names on the cover. Um, the first time Pavement ever took a band photo was when I was writing about Slanted Enchanted for the Village Voice. Um, and it was a lead review in the Village Voice in, in April 1992. And uh, if you had a lead review in the Village Voice, there was a big photo that went with that. And uh, this was communicated to Pavement and Pavement's respect for the institution of getting a review in the Village Voice and a lead review in the Village Voice was such that Pavement allowed a photograph of them before a gig. So the first photo that anybody saw of pavement anybody at all was uh this photo that was uh over the the village voice review of of uh slanted and enchanted um and and so you were responsible for drawing them into the light yes or like you know getting them in front of the camera for the first time but uh you know i had seen pavement in 91 uh in the summer of 91 and you know it was weird to see what they looked like. Was this, was this in Charlottesville? Yeah. And they looked honestly quite different from what anybody thought they were going to look like. Cause everybody had sort of formed a sort of stereotype of what that kind of, you know, like a uh, uh, dude ish uh, guitar noise band was supposed to sound like it was supposed to be, you know, kind of like uh, something kind of Steve Albini ish about the vibe of their personal space. And <laughs> Very much not. They're like these like nice preppy boys. Yes, yes. But also like that kind of, you know, like uh you know, bemused smile, whether they were smiling or not. You know, there was like deadpan kind of thing, but also very evident smiling going on um in a way that w- you wouldn't necessarily have guessed from you know, Perfect Sound Forever, which was the most recent one that we knew at that time. Obviously, there's lots of jokes on those early records, slate tracks and demolition plot and perfect sound forever. Um but they're, they're, nobody was really prepared for pavement in person and that sort of unneurotic, unhostile, unself-defeating kind of vibe. It's 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 like weird. Uh, it, it, like very 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 weird. Um, and and it was not what anybody expected really. And it was funny to see just sort of that impact and and that. Also, that they were playing the slanted and enchanted songs, which nobody had heard. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, like you're hearing Trigger Cut for the first time. And, you know, you're hearing Trigger Cut, you know, you you hear here for the first time. And, you know, it's and and it was definitely like, you know, I listened to the tape of that show now. And it's funny because I'm like, yep, I remember that moment. And I remember that moment. And I remember that moment. My closest experience to that with them would be uh, when I got to see them play uh, the Hex 
playing uh, when they were touring for right in the corners and it was just so immediately apparent that i'm hearing one of my favorite songs in the world amazing like the like the original hex not the not the territorialite version of hex not the compromise second draft um i mean i I mean i like that one on its own terms but the one that's like dearest to my heart is you know yeah yeah the the same title um but and then the hex yes but Chardet was also like you know so mysterious uh, you know, much like, you know, nobody knew the names of the people on pavement, but Chardet's record company actually had to put a thing on the cover of Diamond Life pronounced Chardet because, you know, if everybody would just say sod, you know, like, which was a very 1985 kind of reference to make. But, you know, uh, even if you had heard, you know, like, Your Love is King or Hang On to Your Love, like sort of the advanced singles, like, how overall perfect and and emotional and accomplished, but also Diamond Life and Slanted and Enchanted, very emotionally generous records in a way that kind of went against the image, you know, because Pavement were very uh, emotionally open, emotionally playful, uh, emotionally generous in a way that didn't go with the genre that they were sort of simultaneously emerging from and parodying. And, and, then, was, and then ultimately kind of defining. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's a kind of depressing thought in retrospect, but like certainly at the time people thought of your pavement as coming from that sort of, you know, big black school of, you know, uh, very uptight, um, earnest, humorless sort of guitar bands. Also, like Diamond Life and Slanted and Chained to both records, where part of the fascination is the way they travel over time and the way that a band, if it seems like on one level, they have a pretty limited playbook. You know, there, you can make a long list of the things that Pavement and Chardet don't do. And yet, the fact that what they do do um, resonates across time with people who were not at all like who the band was imagining when they were making those records. Um, and those are records that these bands were making in a very self-consciously um, uh, a, a emotionally alive state of mind. Whereas the genre that they were emerging from was like very like famously uptight, you know, like, like on, on a certain level, Chardet sounded like Spandau Ballet, but certainly after you heard Diamond Life, you wouldn't compare it to any Spandau Ballet records, you know, like Spandau Ballet were very uptight and, and, stingy and parched and closed emotionally much as i love them in a way that Chardet plainly were not you know like uh and 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 yet without giving their secrets away still being very cryptic Chardet nonetheless really invited you into their space in a way that pavement did and that was you know that was very weird for both of those bands so for both of those bands with what on some level might seem like a really limited musical menu like they managed to to, to create something that invites a wide range of people from different ages, different generations, different cultures, different parts of the world.
both also very like internationally huge records, which, you know, wasn't necessarily uh, definitely like not necessarily imaginable for them at the time. Like the pavement were so huge in Europe and Chardet were so huge in America, like must have been bewildering to both of them because like pavement, like very much coming out of a, you know, uh, very closed sort of uh, emotional, emotionally and geographically speaking, a very closed kind of uh, American college town sort of, you know, environment. Uh, not necessarily Northern California, but, you know, like you didn't necessarily think it would play around the world the way it did. And same thing with, you know, Chardet making what was a very, you know, on some level, a very uptight, polished London record, but, you know, it's outlived so many other records from that time in that place that were, you know, ex- excellent records, you know, like, God, I love those style council records. I love those early everything, but the girl records, I, I you know, going a few years later, I, I love those soul to soul records. Lots of people were trying to make records that were like diamond life in the eighties, but you know, Chardet, they just did it in a way that really invited people all over the world and from different generations, different cultures, different personality types. It invited people into that world in a way that exceeds any expectations. And I think with Pavement and Chardet, it's both that way, that both those bands made records that were much more inviting than than people even had a way of realizing at the time. Uh, it's funny, you say, you mentioned before, like the, you know, it's like a long <clears throat> list of things that Pavement would not do. And it occurs to me that like a lot of the the thing that's made Stephen Malcolm's post-Pavement career interesting is that he kind of slowly goes through that list and goes, well, let's give that one a go. Let's give this a try. Like the new record being like, let's do an acoustic folk record, you know, just do it straight ahead. Like no, you know, no quotations around it so much. And you know it's almost like like it, it pays off over time so like things can have a novelty value if, if if just that besides the artistic value yeah absolutely and that you know Chardet like also like the songs on that record that you know I mean part of like what was immediately appealing to about that record was just you know like the smooth sort of uh forbidding almost surfaces of, of the Chardet record it was so polished so finessed we knew that we were never going to see her real hair once ever, you know, like <laughs> just kind of knew that. And, um, and, and, and yet like, even on that first record, you know, like there's songs that are so, you know, emotionally vibrant, you know, like songs that we can all sing without needing to, you know, to look at the titles, your love is King is one of them, you know, when am I going to, yeah. When am I going to make a living? Um, you know, her fantastic version of, of, you know, why can't we live together? which is a song that, you know, was very obscure at the time. Like nobody at the time thought that many years later, Drake would sample it and turn it into <laughs> a mega famous song about, about hotline bling. But, uh, but it's a thing that were like the things that you went to Chardet for, they gave you so much more than, than, than what you would have settled for. It was a record that delivered so much more than they could have gotten away with. It occurs to me now that like a uh, smooth operator that would have been a big hit when I'm I'm a kid that comes out around eighty four, um, but that's probably one of the first songs that I on any level had kind of had some understanding. Oh, this is a sexy song. <laughs> like that. That's my idea of what adults do. Yes, yes, um, absolutely, <laughs> yes, um, and the sort of you know. And sort of the, you know, the affected jadedness of it, you know, like, you know, place for beginners or sensitive hearts, you know, it's a song that like, 
affects this very worldly tone, but it's also, it's a very, you know, emotionally legible song, you know, like it gives you an emotional story, a character that you can relate to and feel something. And, 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 you know, you look at what was written about Chardet in, in, 1984-85, the things that were written about pavement in 91-92, and you know, they're not really alert to that playful side of it. Um it's you know, it 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 it's funny that that those records both had such a long life. Um, you know, they 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 had so much heart as well as brains, you know, like the elusive combo, but there's something warm about both those records that's that's you know really disconcerting. And and it's funny because you go to the second Chardet record and you get super emotional songs like Maureen. Gosh, I can't even talk about that song or I'm just going to like uh, make a mess on, 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 on Mike. Um, but like Maureen's, you know, like this is somebody, she's like, okay, I did this. I achieved my comfort level. Now I'm going to take some risks emotionally. And it's, you know, just there's some astonishing songs on that second Chardet record. I like all the Chardet records personally. Uh, just like I love all the pavement records. Um, have you seen her live no never or them i should say them in fairness them, yeah i it's funny how i go back and forth but part of what i love about charday is they very much want it that way <laughs> that you know like that you know if, if the other people in the band wanted it to be known that there was a band they would be in some flashier band but charday has done such a brilliant job of you know keeping it focused on you know like keeping really the door closed the room where the music is made but uh that, you know, there are super uh, emotional and warm songs on all those records. It's funny that the warmth was something that was very easy to miss about Diamond Life when it came out and very easy to miss about Pavement when they came out. But I think that's ultimately what has given Chardet and Pavement both such amazing longevity and universality. One more to go. This is Sean T. Collins, uh, television critic, just a general critic. He has a book out about the movie Roadhouse that you might want to read. It is called Pain Don't Hurt. Uh, in this clip, uh, we, we, we've done a, I've done a few with Sean. And, you know, we're, we're very close friends and we can just kind of riff. And in this little riff, we riff on Guns N' Roses and... Uh, just the idea of the rock person. The thing that I always insist that that people need to understand that's hard to understand looking back about Nirvana and about the sort of hard rock lineage is that, um, to me at least, Guns N' Roses really did represent a break from the prevailing trends in hard rock. I mean, you had you had actual metal you had thrash, you had Metallica, but Guns N' Roses sounded and looked to me very, very different from Poison, Motley Crue, uh, Slaughter, Winger, Trickster, you know, all those bands that were around at the time, Warrant. Uh, what, what do you think was the core of that? Because I think part of it was just that they seemed actually like dangerous, yes. unhinged yes. people, whereas the others seemed like they were just playing. Right, that, and that's a big part of it, that they seemed legit, 
like they, they like grimy, like real grimy. Right. I, I think like it, it's like the, it's the authenticity, yeah, though, right? Because yeah. like when you enter into the early '90s, like everybody has like this real authentic quality to them, one way or another. Right. And that is like the most prized thing of the '90s and of Gen X as a generation is the obsession with authenticity and being like, you know, presenting your and yeah, and it's like that kind of edginess and griminess and you know, which is Guns N' Roses really is like this bridge between these these two eras because Guns N' Roses also a band though I think that that makes them different from a lot of those other bands is they really are obsessed with classic rock. Like they really are synthesizing, you know, all all the all the rock opera stuff. They're synthesizing Queen. They're synthesizing Elton John. Uh, like they're covering. Uh, they they make their references very known, but in the in the covers, you know, with like Bob Dylan and uh, Paul McCartney, yeah. and you know, like and then all the punk bands. Like uh, it's funny because that's a thing that I think uh, in some ways very similar to Nirvana, where like both of these bands were very. Uh, transparent about where they're coming from right. and like what made them what they are. Well, that's what I was, even as sweet generally as both of those bands kind of are. That's what I was getting at. That like I think nowadays it's clear that Axl Rose was the John the Baptist to Kurt Cobain's Jesus Christ. You know, like he presaged a lot of the. You know, it's it's Guns N' Roses were so goddamn big. That's another thing that's difficult to convey to people that they were the yeah. biggest band in the world. They were so big, um, and just and the way they kind of existed in pop culture was just so enormous. Yeah. It was like, and I think like you know, then a couple of years later, like I think Nirvana and Pearl Jam occupied that space of just like, you know, the the level, like the amount of space a thing like Taylor Swift takes up now is what Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam were like in their moments. Yeah, yeah man, Axel was like uh, Axel was like the male Madonna. Like it just every utterance, every movie made every appearance like yeah like the ultimate mtv male yes yeah he was where she was the ultimate mtv woman yeah. that's i think that's accurate yeah and this he just had like the the perfect image he was uh he was cute but like not like too cute and uh you know and he he definitely had like kind of proto kanye things where he would just uh go into like long long like monologues on stage i was watching this one uh video from the use your illusion tour that's on youtube uh, a few months ago and it's uh like maybe three songs into the set he just does like a 15 minute monologue or the, the rest of the band is like waiting around to play the next song. And it's like, yeah, that's 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 insane. <laughs> Especially for a person who had a reputation for like a getting on stage late. Right. Yeah, causing riots and shit. Like I think a, it's funny cuz like, you know, like I think in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, there is this idea like the rock star as this kind of like and people, I think, especially as it comes up in rap and, uh, you know, rap like music or like uh, Post Malone, mm-hmm. etc. Um, I think like when people talk about rock star, I think they really just mean Axl Rose. Like, I don't, I'm not even sure if they're even reaching back to Led Zeppelin. I think every conception of what a rock star is today is 
basically just Axl Rose, maybe Guns N' Roses in full, but really Axl Rose is the thing that anyone is talking about. Yeah, definitely. Tantrums and booze and models, models and, and like yeah. it's the the whole thing. He lived the whole yeah. thing. Like he he really had the outlaw thing, the the the, the outrageous artistic ambition thing. Uh, he's dangerous, you know, you know, like he's projecting a really raw sexuality. He lived the gimmick, as we say in the pro wrestling biz. He lived the gimmick. Yeah, that, that 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 it's funny like how much of this stuff connects to wrestling. Like if if you're doing like if you're if you're making yourself a real character, it really is connecting to like the essential. If you kind of like I, I don't know, like you call it like wrestling theory, you know? Right. <laughs> it's true though. That shit's so valuable for understanding a lot of this stuff, or at least talking about it. Um, yeah, I you know it's funny because like I think so you have a one end like wrestle call it wrestling theory and then like the stuff that i was basically indoctrinated in with with that buzzfeed which was the uh, uh cultural cartography stuff of like oh why do people share things why do people connect with things and i think if you kind of look at if, if you digest both of those ideas like uh 75% of pop culture becomes very quite apparent to you like what it is mm-hmm. Like all the moves are right there. It's, I think it's you know I've never uh, I, I sometimes I wish I had uh, a full understanding of music theory. I have an abstract understanding of it, but I've never really been a musician. Right. Um, but you know I think understanding music theory on like a really deep level, uh, I'm not. I think in, in some ways that probably hurts your appreciation of a lot of music, although it might enhance some other things. But yeah, that's that's me with the cultural cartography stuff for sure. So what? So what's the lay of the land for Guns and Roses in that respect? Then <sighs> Guns and well, I think it's kind of the gun. They, they kind of go hand in hand there, right? Because it's the idea of like you buy into Guns and Roses because you identify with uh, this kind of badass thing. You want to be perceived as such in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, it's probably not that different from how people relate to Rihanna. 
where the, the, the way people relate to Rihanna, I think especially at least uh, women is the idea of like, she's the bad bitch and I wish I could be the bad bitch. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're maybe you identify with her in some degree, but it's really more of an aspirational identity. Like you want to somehow be like Rihanna or you want to like know Rihanna and have her be the friend, you know, who kind of unlocks something in you. I think Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses have similar effects. Like I don't, I'm not even sure if you necessarily want to know Axl Rose, but I think you want to embody Axl Rose in some way. Yeah. He seemed like a very difficult person. Like he, I yeah. were under the impression that Axl Rose would be my friend or, yeah, Anything. but but I think you think about the utility of Guns N' Roses. Like, what? Is, like, where do you hear Guns N' Roses? Well, any any dive bar anywhere in the United States and probably anywhere else too. Yep. Like, it is the it is the dive bar music. Like, more than I think that. Like, what else would be on the same level? Like ACDC, like kind of covering a similar zone. Um, you know, even with Axl Rose subbing in for ACDC yeah, yeah. Like in the more recent past. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's the thing with uh, it's 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 projecting like a, a vibe and an image and aspirational lifestyle. Like Appetite for Destruction is kind of like this design for life if you're a particular kind of rock person. It's the whole and, template of, of what a rocker looks like. Quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, because I was talking about this also in the context of the Lost Boys, the vampire film that Joe Schumacher made in the late 80s, because because um, the, the, the vampires in that film had this strange California style that was like this hodgepodge of goth and punk and metal stuff. And, you know, they seem they just seem to me to be their influences for all from, from all over the place, but you know, it's sort of the same kind of vibe as guns and roses. Like that's sort of decadent sunset strip. Um, but like with a real, like, like these are the people who get thrown out of the bars, you know? Yeah. What to you is the essential difference between the aesthetics of guns and roses and the aesthetics of grunge? Cause it's really like one step over. I think I think maybe the most obvious thing is like the pomp of uh, Guns N' Roses. But if you kind of like don't even talk about that, like what what separates him from Kurt Cobain and from Chris Cornell? Um, the lyrics are more direct. I think with Guns N' Roses, it's easier to tell what the songs are about. Um, there is the clothing is a bigger deal like dressing like a metal person. Um, As opposed to Chris Cornell is not wearing shirts. Right, right. They just kind of gave up on clothing. <laughs> you know, um, and I think it's uh, not as edgy sexually as Guns N' Roses was. Or maybe it's just in different ways. Like, cause I think Chris Cornell, like, proje- see, I think Chris Cornell projects sexuality in his appearance but not as much in the music itself yeah i mean when they did that it was you know it was like a they did big dumb sex you know which is like right which is kind of like making fun of it exactly right right yeah 
I mean, I think the maybe like one of the key differences, like the key, like the the thing that Guns N' Roses has that the grunge fans don't is this connection to like the more uh, theatrical elements of classic rock, the seventies rock canon. And the thing that the grunge people have, you know, uh, especially like the big five, you know, like uh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and I guess Stuntable Pilots. Um, there's like an element of depression that is just like so heavy in all of that music. And I don't really think that depression is really like a, a major mood in uh, Guns N' Roses. Like I think it's depression manifests itself maybe differently in those records, like where it is more like a, it maybe comes out more angry or it comes out more petulant. Yeah. I mean, with Axel, you found out like, Axel wrote a song where he listed people at magazines that had pissed him off. <laughs> and it's like, Axel really, does, Axel really does have like more of a rapper quality to him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know what else it is? I think it's coming from LA and I think it's showbiz. There's an element of showbiz to Guns N' Roses, even as much, even as much as they did seem like a break from hair metal. There's still like, there's still LA to the core. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, not present with uh, it's uh, it's there for stone devil pilots a bit which makes sense. well they're, they're but they're san diego you know and, and eddie vetter is also from san diego and i feel like they're just more like connected to like the beach uh-huh. in this kind of way you know eddie vetter being a surfer and i feel like it's more of like that kind of southern california thing or it's probably connected more to like coop you know we mentioned coop yeah. uh, in the other podcast um I think like the as far as I can tell, not being a person from California, the, the difference between like San Diego and L.A. is like substantial, but not I, I think it's kind of like the difference between being from Brooklyn versus being from like mid New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think you can see it. Narcissism of small differences, but, you know, right. So There's still the differences are still there. And Guns N' Roses and Stone Temple Pilots eventually became the same band. So. Yes, they did. That's a good point. <laughs> oh, God. I love the idea that the guys in Guns N' Roses were like, we need a stable front. <laughs> who do we, who could we reach out to? <laughs> and they found Scott Weiland, who turned out to be tremendously less uh, grounded than Axl Rose. Oh, man. Oh God! Slash knows how to pick them. <laughs> so I, I, I imagine Slash was like, you know, reaching out to like, oh God, like, uh, like Juice World. Like, hey, do you want to like do? Oh God, Juice World died too early. You know, like a lot of like those kind of guys. Mm. Just like who? Like yeah, just like a, a little peep. There's a, a lot of these guys who are we like the the, the Gen Z versions of this. Let's make this one reach the heavens. Thank you for listening all the way through. Uh, if you want to 
you know, obviously, if you, this is your first episode, I, I ask you to please smash the subscribe button. I don't care what platform it is. And if you feel really compelled, I think you should subscribe to the Patreon. Again, that is patreon.com slash All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.